Well, thank you, Pastor Steve, and uh, it's a, it is a delight to, to be with you again. It's been four years, I think, the last time we were here was 2019, and uh, I want to bring you, be uh, sure to bring you greetings from your sister church in Rugby, England, Grace Bible Church Rugby, and from the elders and the members there uh, in central England, about 50 minutes uh, train ride north of London. And um, we wanted uh, to bring their greeting to you. We also want to thank you as a supporting church to our family and uh, to our son in the faith, Claudio Farina, and his wife, Nikki, who are planting a church uh, on Madeira Island, a Portuguese island, about 350 miles off the coast of Morocco. And um, we want to give you a brief next Sunday morning, if the Lord allows. Uh, Pastor has uh, scheduled me to be in the adult Sunday school where we'll have actually pictures and uh, maybe even a special appearance from someone on Madeira Island if we can work out the technical details for a live interview uh, to be able to ask uh, questions and get, a, and get a live update on what's happening in the gospel work to that all-Catholic island there. It's a beautiful island. It's uh, so beautiful that the Pope is uh, known to holiday there. I think Pastor Steve was saying we need to have an STM from Grace Bible Church Bakersfield to go over because it's so beautiful. Uh, it's also uh, visited by a million tourists in non-COVID years um, uh, because it's so beautiful. It's called the Pearl of the Atlantic. Um, uh, it is one of the top 10 most dangerous airports to fly into. So those of you who are thinking about short-term ministry trips, better make sure your life insurance policy is up to date. Um, I, when I landed there the first time, everyone started clapping and cheering, and I said, what are they clapping about? And I said, and the brother said, well, we landed the first time. And, uh, and I said, and they said, didn't you see the mountains as we were coming in? And I said, no, you put me right next to a bulkhead, so I couldn't see anything. And, uh, and they said, don't worry, pastor, they've extended the runway, so not so many planes are falling in the, in the Atlantic anymore. Um, and I was saying to the men before the service in our pre-service prayer time, uh, you know, you, you, you support Claudio Farina and, and his wife, Nikki, and their three children who have left uh, rugby in January, and they're doing evangelism three to five days a week now as they set up their family on the island. And I, I just said, it's like, <clears throat> I, I don't know how to communicate what that means to me um, because he, he is a son in the faith to me. And... Um, what you do for him, you do for me. And uh, I love him. And I love his brother, Sandra, who both got saved. And Sandra's planning a church. Um, and uh, they're, they're off and running two years on the island. Uh, he's of a different eschatological persuasion. I'm so glad you're doing a premillennial extended series. Um, and so we, we think that when these two churches get off the ground and we start having conferences, it's going to be like Sproul and MacArthur. And uh, two brothers who love each other dearly, and um, we're so glad that the gospel is being brought back uh, to Madeira. Well, I'd like to pray and then invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8 with me tonight. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and we praise you for your amazing grace in our lives. We thank you for your Son and our Savior the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for your grace in our lives. We thank you that you came from heaven all the way to this veil of tears to seek and save the lost. 
which is an apt description of what we were like. We thank you for your amazing saving grace that you extend your kindness to those who are hostile against you. Lord, we want to thank you for raising up this church, Grace Bible Church of Bakersfield. Thank you, Lord, that this is a place where your word is taught and where sinners are loved with the gospel, where the outreach is obvious, where the discipleship is, is day by day, moment by moment. And thank you, Lord, that you have raised up churches like this to be a, a light in the darkness and to help spread the gospel around the world. And now, Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would cause your spirit to lead us and guide us in the all truth. We pray that, Lord Jesus, your name would be exalted and that if there are anyone here who does not yet know you in a saving way, that tonight might be the night of their salvation. We thank you and praise you for saving us. And now we pray as we direct our thoughts to you that you would be honored and glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country. I'm reading from the ESV. Is that okay, Pastor? Um, Okay. Then they sailed to the country of the garrisons, that is Jesus and his disciples, which is opposite Galilee. And when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the garrisons asked him, that is Jesus, to depart from them. For they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Have you ever considered why many new believers 
tend to share the gospel more frequently, more passionately, more joyfully than many of us who have been saved for a long time? It's a question I've thought about for a long time. And I've been meditating on this particular question for probably several years, but particularly since we've returned to the States back in June, more so. I'm concerned about this very fact for my own walk with the Lord, that the longer I'm in the, in the Lord, that perhaps I'm not as zealous for the gospel as I was the day the Lord saved me. Have you ever experienced that in your own Christian life, particularly those of you who've been saved for a while? As believers, it, uh, it, it seems that uh, as mature believers, it seems like the more mature we get spiritually, there is a noticeable decline uh, in joy. And uh, we know the Bible talks a lot about why our joy goes, and there are numerous biblical reasons, none of them good. And there's a noticeable decline in those who are, quote-unquote, mature in their gospel urgency. So joy and gospel urgency, as the longer we go on with the Lord, seems to be declining for many people. This spiritual condition, uh, this, uh, this spiritual decline that I'm referring to, seems to be most pervasive among believers who are the most comfortable in life. And praise God, that's not always the case. There are people who are comfortable in life who have an urgency with the gospel. But there are many people who, as they've imbibed the world's goods, have begun to decline in their joy. Now, I'm not, I know you're an exception here at this church, but I'm talking about what I see over in the United Kingdom. What I hear from the pulpit here is a real zeal, a discipleship like that. Well, can my children come? You know, that's where we want a ki- our kids in a church like that. And so perhaps this is a, a sermon that's uh, for another church, but perhaps it'll fit. And if it does ease your mind uh, to know that this spiritual decline is not just one that touches American believers, but it, is, it touches many believers in the UK where we minister. And this is where we're concerned that those who seem to be uh, the older, more mature, the gray heads, we call them, Those who are supposed to be the wisest among us have grown comfortable, at least in the UK. Uh, In our early days preaching and pastoring in Rugby, England, an elderly couple who fit this very spiritual description, and I've never forgotten this pastoral experience, they they asked me to visit the husband who was admitted to the hospital, Uh, just a few medical tests, Uh, just no reason for concern, nothing to see here. Uh, nothing serious, but would you come uh, and make a pastoral visit? And, you know, we, that's what we do over in England. We, we visit hospitals uh, when our members are there, like your pastor does here. And, um, and, and we had a few moments of conversing there with the husband who was comfortably in bed. And they were like, oh, pastor, we're not sure why you troubled yourself to come out here to see us. There's nothing serious here. And, and, um, after a few medical tests, just routine checkups. But you see, over the years, this particular couple had grown very comfortably, very comfortable materially, and at the same time, they had grown cold spiritually. Praise the Lord that that's not always the case. 
Those two things don't always coexist, but many times they do. I spoke with the man and his wife, read scriptures, and prayed with them, and they, and they said, please, go on, Pastor. You have so much more to do. So I left, and not long after I left, the man's medical condition changed rapidly, and I received a phone call that you need to return to the hospital. And as I came back into the hospital, I noticed, the first thing I noticed was the, the look of fear and, and concern on the man's face. And then I looked at his wife, and I saw the look of fear and concern on her face, and I looked at those who were attending him, and I noticed the concern on the medical staff's face. There was a sense of urgency as they attended him, and I asked him, are you afraid? Are you afraid? And he said, yes, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. I asked him, if God brings you through this, what is there worth living for, for you? And he said, there's so many things that I wanted to do for the Lord. So many people that I had planned to share the gospel with, but haven't. I I, I planned to tell my family members about Christ, and I planned to do that later. Sadly, that man entered eternity without ever sharing the gospel to those people he knew and loved. And I planned one day, one day, to share Christ with them. He only sensed the, the gospel need and gospel urgency when he was about to stand before the Lord, the one who loved him and gave himself for him. But by this time, his time for sharing the gospel was over. It was too late to do that. And before the apostle Peter died, he wrote these words. I think it is right as long as I'm in the body, this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. My aim and my prayer for all of us tonight, as we look together in God's Word in Luke chapter 8, is to do just that. I want to stir you up by reminding you of why Jesus has saved you. My goal, my human goal, is that you would become burning and shining lights for Jesus, stirred up by God's Word, and reminded that you have been saved and sent by God to glorify Jesus Christ. You're in Luke chapter 8, and in this passage of Scripture, um, the background to to this gospel is Luke writing to Theophilus about Uh, 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 writing these events so that Theophilus may have certainty concerning the things he'd been taught and concerning specifically the things he's been taught about the person and work of Jesus. You can see that in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. In other words, the stated authorial intent of Luke is to bolster the faith of Theophilus, that is, that Theophilus may have the strength of certainty about the person and work of Christ. And in today's postmodern world, certainty about the person and work of Christ is, is absolutely lacking, isn't it? Well, let's have a dialogue, or we can't really be sure, or let's have a, reach tentative conclusions. Nope, Luke is writing so that Theophilus will have certainty about who Christ is, and that's going to become apparent in our passage. His goal is going to be unfolded in our passage uh, in very amazing ways. And in Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 25, the, the the events leading up to our passage, Jesus shows his power over the forces of nature by calming the sea and by calming uh, the winds and the waves. 
You know, remember the story? He was, he, the, the disciples woke him up and said, uh, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he gets up, he speaks up, he stands up, speaks up, and the winds and waves shut up. And the once uh, tumultuous waves on the Sea of Galilee became Lake Placid. You know the story. And do you remember the question that the disciples asked at the end of that incredible, miraculous event? Who is this guy? Who is this man that even the winds and waves obey him? Well, he is the one who has power over the forces of nature in verses 22 and 25. And in our text tonight, verses 26 through 39, Jesus is going to demonstrate that he has power over the forces of darkness. And and specifically in our verses, verses 26 through 39, he is going to demonstrate his power over the forces of darkness. He's going to bring about a deliverance that's going to lead to Christ's, to Jesus's exaltation. And, and, And my thesis to present to you tonight, my proposition is that if you've been delivered by Christ, then that ought to lead to everyone who's been delivered by Christ exalting Jesus Christ, glorifying Christ. In our text, Jesus is going to show his power over the forces of darkness by delivering a man completely in the grip and power of demonic darkness. Two lessons about deliverance that result in the exaltation of Jesus Christ. So I know you're a note-taking church. Two lessons about deliverance that result in the exaltation of, uh, of Jesus Christ. There is a need, first of all, for Jesus' deliverance found in verses 27 through 33. And secondly, there is a response to Jesus' deliverance. That's the sermon. That, that's it. There's a need for the deliverance that Jesus brings and there's a response to the deliverance that Jesus brings in verses 34 through 39. And I just warn you now that I have a long first point and a short second point. I know Steve Lawson has preached in your church in the past, has he not, Pastor? And he would say, I have a big porch and a small house. That's how he would describe the sermon. But that's just for your encouragement. The first lesson that we learn from verses 27 through 34 Uh, three is that there's a need for Jesus's deliverance. How can we be so sure that this man here uh, really needs Jesus's deliverance? Well, there are two details that prove that this man needs deliverance. First, the man's description proves he needs deliverance. And secondly, the man's recognition of Jesus proves he needs deliverance. Notice first the man's description in verse 27. Uh, There's the incidental a comment about his local origin in verse 27, that he's a man from the city. That's going to be not so important at the beginning, but when you get to verses 34 through 39, it's going to become more important. But notice his spiritual condition is given. He had demons. His physical condition is given. He had uh, worn no clothes. His current residence is described. He had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And the length of his captivity to darkness, which is only recorded in the Gospel of Luke there in verse 27, with that prepositional phrase, for a long time, tells us how long he'd been in the grip of darkness. This man's description proves he really needs deliverance. He's in trouble. Demons, no clothes, no house, and for a long time. But not only does his description prove he needs deliverance, the second detail is also that proves that this man's deliverance is found in verse 28, and it's the man's recognition of Jesus. And there are three observations that I would like to make and then unpack them. 
This man's recognition of Jesus. Without an introduction, the man knew Jesus' name. Without an explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity. And without hesitation, the man knew Jesus' power. All in verse 28. Without an introduction, he knew Jesus' name. Now, the Gospels make it clear that this man, as soon as Jesus steps out on the shores from the boat, that this uh, encounter takes place. It's a sudden and an intense meeting, and yet this man knows Jesus' name. When it says in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, what have, I, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Uh, despite the, sudden, not, the suddenness and intensity, this man knows Jesus' name. Isn't that odd to you? Some of you have introduced yourself to me again tonight for the second time or the first time. Some of you we've not met and we'll need to introduce ourselves. But, but Jesus steps out on the, on the shore and this man immediately knows who, this, who Jesus is. And, and by the way, don't, don't miss this. It's only around Christmas time where we really, really go into the meaning of the name Jesus. But it, I think it's fitting, right, on, on, on the 21st of May, just to remind you that the name Jesus means what? You, you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That word save, sozo, means he'll deliver. Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the savior. Jesus is Yahweh saves. Yahweh delivers. Don't miss that. The man needing deliverance spoke to Yahweh delivers. That's good. We, we shouldn't miss that. The only one that can deliver is standing right before this man who needs deliverance. Yahweh delivers is standing before him. And the man, notice this, in need of Jesus' deliverance is not seeking Jesus' deliverance. Does it look like he's seeking Jesus' deliverance? What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It sounds like he doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. He's not seeking Jesus. He's not looking for Jesus. But Jesus came looking for him. Jesus is the seeking Savior. Seeking the lost. This is another example of Jesus seeking out the sinner who was, as Charles Wesley penned in 1738, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And you see, no introductions were possible and no introductions were necessary. This man needed deliverance. Without an introduction, the man knew Jesus' name. But secondly, without explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? This is the point of the sermon where I get to warn those who are in an excellent Bible preaching and Bible teaching church of the danger of knowing the data about Jesus Christ, assenting that the data about Jesus Christ is true, and still that's as far as you go. You know, the, you know the Word of God because you're well taught. You believe that the Word of God is true. And if that's, the, if that's all you are, if that's all you believe, you're going to die and split hell wide open in that state. The Bible says that there's a third component that is necessary for true saving faith. You need to know the data of the Gospel. That's the notitia. This we learned from R.C. Sproul, didn't we? You need to know the data of the gospel. You need to assent to the veracity or the truthfulness of the gospel. That it's true, but without fiducia. 
Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to God must first believe that He is and that He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. I grew up in a Roman Catholic family to the age of five, never understood, uh, never understood what they were talking about in the Mass in north central New Jersey uh, in the 70s. It was all done in Latin. And as we know, as one scholar said, Latin is an incredible language in which to hide the truth. Um, uh, most of you, that's a grenade. You'll get that later. And uh, you, we would sign on the dotted line as Roman Catholics uh, all that the Bible teaches about Jesus is true, uh, all that the Bible teaches and all that it says is true. But we weren't taught solo fide. We weren't taught by faith alone in Christ alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it, salvation, if you want to put faith there, we know the interpretive debate, it is the gift of God. It's not your believing that saves you. God grants faith. God grants repentance. We preach and God saves His people. I I guess what I'm trying to say is an accurate Christology alone cannot and does not save you. We learn that from this text. This demon-possessed man knows who Jesus is and he has probably a better understanding of Jesus than we do. He's not saved. James 2.19 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. We know that there's a non-saving kind of faith like in James 2.19 I don't know if it was R.C. Sproul or Pastor MacArthur who said, if you think you're saved only because you believe correct things about Jesus, all that does is qualify you to be like a demon. Close quote. So without explanation, the man knew Jesus' true identity. And without hesitation, the man knew Jesus' power. What are the indications from the text that the man knew Jesus' power? Look at verse 28. Uh, he, he says in verse 28, he, he falls down before him and then he says, I beg you. Notice that word beg. This indicates that he knew Jesus's power. Uh, this is a, really a, a contrast because when you, and I know some people hate the harmony of the Gospels, but in the other parallel accounts in, in, in Matthew, it, it, this is so incredibly uh, important because This man is so powerful. Even in our text, we read about how powerful uh, it is in the parenthetic in verse 29. For many times the demon had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. This is a powerful man. This is a man that the people, according to the other gospel accounts, are afraid of. No one can walk by. This guy would subdue them. This guy would harm them. But here is this man falling down before Jesus, who's just stepped off the boat, and they are not attacking him. They are not overpowering him. They are begging him. Deomai. It's used of a word in Scripture in places of desperation, like in Luke 5, 12, where the man full of leprosy begs Jesus to heal him, and it's used by other desperate human beings. There's a different Greek word found in verse 31 and verse 32 where they beg him. Parakaleo, it means to make a strong request. It's the language of prayer. And so you're going to have to ask yourself, is this demon praying? 
Not like you and I would pray to the Almighty, but he is speaking to the Almighty and he's begging Jesus. This is one indication that this, uh, that this man and the demons in him, without hesitation, knew Jesus' power. But there's a second indication here that they knew his power when he says uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 20, is it verse 28? I've lost my, pl- my pace, place here. Verse 28, I beg you, do not torment me. I beg you, do not torment me. Now, the word torment means to subject to severe distress, to subject to punitive judicial procedures, according to the lexicons. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 24, this word torment is used to describe a boat that is being battered by the winds and the waves on the high sea. And that's the same exact word that, that this man says, do not torment me, do not batter me back and forth ceaselessly. And by the way, do you remember what we said was the previous narrative, the few verses before this account? Where were the disciples? They were on the high seas. The Galilee had turned into high seas and they were on a boat that was being battered back and forth. They're listening to this man use the same words. Have you come to batter us before the time? Have you come to torment us? Now, Matthew eight twenty nine, the parallel passage says before the time. And just think about this for a second. This, is, this might be difficult for some of you to hear this. The idea of Jesus tormenting anybody. Just, you have to think about that. Have you come to torment us before the time? Uh, uh, Jesus tormenting anybody? Well, that's countercultural to our biblically ignorant world. You see, Jesus is often portrayed as a soft, effeminate man who never stepped on an ant. Yet I suggest the real, true picture, the updated picture, we, um, we, we gave out our uh, missionary prayer cards. Sorry, this one's bent. That's a new, updated missionary prayer card. You know, the one thing that's consistent about being British missionaries is we always put the British flag behind us. The people on the front, I, I don't know, but they just keep getting older and that, that man in there just keeps getting whiter hair. And, and, and sometimes people have an outdated picture of who Jesus is. You see, they have a picture of Jesus being uh, the one who is constantly on the cross, constantly being mocked, constantly being ridiculed. No, the updated picture that you need of Jesus is found in Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. That gives you the more up-to-date picture. He's, Jesus is not the suffering Savior. He is the glorious Christ. He is risen. He holds the keys of death and hell. He said, I am He who died and am alive forevermore. Jesus is the glorious Christ. And by the way, when it comes to Jesus tormenting the demons before the time, don't you remember John 5.22 where Jesus said the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Revelation 14.9-11 speaks of those who are going to receive the mark of the beast and will be judged by God because of it. Romans 14.9-11 He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels. Tormented. And in the presence of the Lamb. I didn't write that. The demons know they will face Jesus on the day of judgment. And my dear lost friend, so will you. The Lamb of God 
who died on the cross is the same Lamb who is going to judge the fallen angels. He is the same Lamb who will judge everyone who receives the mark of the beast and He will judge every unbeliever who enters eternity without salvation. That only Jesus Himself provides. Having rejected His atoning work, if you die in an unforgiven state, you will stand before the one you rejected and be judged. And these demons know about that coming day. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto a person once to die and after this to judgment. And for some of you and for me, that day is coming soon. You better be right with Christ. You better know Him as your Lord and Savior. And finally, notice what it says, do not torment us. There's a second comment to make here. Don't miss the irony. Uh, Do you see the irony in the passage? I mean, we could have read over it when he says uh, there in verse 28, at the end of it, do not torment me. Well, the irony is is that the demons begged Jesus not to do to them what they had been doing to this poor man. And do you remember, remember that throwaway prepositional phrase? For a long time. You see, some people might almost feel sympathetic towards the demons at this point. But they had been doing this to this man for a long time, tormenting this man. Now, I want you to look at Jesus' question in verse 30. I know a lot of you want me to talk about the pigs. I'm not going to talk about the pigs tonight. You've heard a lot of stories about the pigs. Talk to me after the sermon, and I'll, and I'll talk with you about what happened with the pigs, and, and we'll talk about that. But for time's sake, I want you to look at verse 30. Because two worlds are about to collide as Jesus asks the demon this question, what is your name? And he answers, legion, for we are many. Now, in the time of Caesar Augustus, a legion was the name given to a group of about 6,000 Roman soldiers. 6,000. And I know what you're thinking, aren't you? You're already, I, I can see it on your face. Is a Is a Roman legion the same as a demonic legion, Tom? I mean, is it 6,000 demons? What's the picture we should have in our mind? I don't know if a Roman legion is the same as a demonic legion. Let's just say that it's half of a Roman legion. Only 3,000 demons. Remember what one demon did in in a possessed man with the sons of Sceva? (laughs) They've... They may, all right, if you wanted to say 2,000 demons, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. The, the question is, is, why does Jesus ask this question, what is your name? Well, if he is God, the Son of God, why does he have to ask a question at all? If he knows everything, and God is omniscient, he knows it all, Well, why does he ask the question? Well, it's not for his sake. It's for our sake. Probably the best biblical analogy I can give you is found in 2 Kings 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 14 to 17. And we don't have time to look at the passage, but just write it down. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 to 17, where the king of Syria is trying to defeat and kill the king of Israel. But every time he goes out to kill the king of Israel... Somehow he misses killing the king of Israel because the king of Israel somehow is warned about the trap that's been set for him. And, and eventually the king of Syria asks the question among his men, 
can anyone tell me who is for Israel among us? How is it that they're able to avoid being killed and, and defeated? And one of his attendants said, Sir, it, it, it's Elisha. He, he knows what the king talks about, even in his private chamber. So the king of Syria says, we got to take Elisha out if we're going to succeed in killing the king of Israel. So he gets his troops together, the king of Syria, and he finds out that Elisha and Elisha's servants are in the city of Dothan. And they march all night with their chariots and their horses. And while Elisha and his servant are sleeping, they surround the city of Dothan. And the servant gets up and, uh, and he has his K-cup in the morning uh, with his cup of coffee. And as he goes out on the balcony to look at the great view of the city, he sees all the Syrian army around the city. And he drops his K-cup, runs into the prophet and says, Master, Master. The city is surrounded with horses and chariots and the Syrians here. They're going to overtake us. And Elisha said to his troubled servant, Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Probably the closest biblical parallel to what we have happening in Luke chapter eight, when Jesus says, what is your name? Jesus, like Elisha, was saying that there is a spiritual dimension to the world in which we live in. That's often overlooked and mostly is overlooked. Uh, We live in the physical. You look with your physical eyes. How often are we thinking about spiritual realities like Elisha was trying to share with his servant and like Jesus was trying to share with his disciples? There's a, you you have a physical part of you, but you are not just matter in motion. You are not just material. There's an immaterial part of you. God breathed into Adam and he became a living nefesh, a living soul. And what Jesus is trying to say here is he's pulling back the veil and reveals what is happening in the unseen spiritual world. And do you know that these two worlds, the physical world and the spiritual worlds, are still colliding every time Jesus saves somebody? Because it it begins with the preaching, the general call of the gospel, sharing with people, as Pastor MacArthur said this morning in in the sermon, that we are poor beggars, blind and oppressed. And that's the only way we can come to Jesus, is acknowledging how desperate we are and in need of His Christ's help and His atoning work for us. God, Jesus didn't come to, to save the righteous. He didn't come for the righteous. These two worlds are colliding. Every time you share the gospel with somebody and the Holy Spirit begins to open their heart, regenerate them, they repent and confess Christ. What is it it that Jesus needs His disciples to see? Two things. They need to see, number one, up until this point in Luke chapter 8, it it looked like what was taking place was a battle between one man, Jesus, and one man, the demoniac. They, they needed to see that it was not mano y mano. That's for the Spanish ministry. 
And the second thing he needed his disciples to see is that this was no fair fight. No fair fight. Greater numbers do not always mean greater power. 3,000 demons versus Jesus, no fair fight. And what, what does a weaker army do when it sees it's vastly outmatched by its opponent? It sues for peace. And that's exactly what happens here. This man says he sues for peace. Well, there's a second lesson to learn about deliverance. And I did say that my second point is much shorter, and it is. There's a response to Jesus' deliverance. That's the second point. There's the need for it. We see it quite clearly. And then there's the response to Jesus' deliverance. In fact, there are three responses. There's the response of the herdsmen. It's described in two ways. They run away, cowards. And, and then they tell it in verse 34. And then there's the response of the people of the city in verses 35 through 37. Notice they were curious, verse 34a. They were afraid, verse 35c. And they asked Jesus to depart in verse 37. They're curious, afraid, and they ask Jesus to depart. My dear lost friend, the losers in this passage are the herdsmen and the people of the city who beg Jesus to go away. They're the losers of this narrative. Go away from us. And I, I just appeal to you, do not harden your heart against Christ tonight. Perhaps some of you have heard the gospel over and over and over again. This might be the last time that you might be able to hear the gospel before you stand before God. We had two loved ones taken suddenly into glory in the, within the last 12 months. Uh, my wife's mother, who was killed by a drunk driver, she knew and loved Christ, died serving Christ. And a, and a wonderful, a dear pastor friend of ours up in Northern California who died unexpectedly after a, an operation. He's with his Savior. They're both with their Savior. But some of you are not prepared to stand before the Lord because you've not yet repented of your sins and looked to Christ. Oh, you've come to church, you, you know the data and you assent it's true, but you're not resting entirely and, and alone in Christ alone. And you need to do that. There's no, you don't have to leave tonight still in your sins. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And, and this is no chance meeting tonight. All of us who have already been delivered by Jesus know the clang, clang of that ball and chain of sin you are carrying, my dear lost friend. We know that your only hope for deliverance is Jesus Christ. And the Scripture says in John chapter 8, verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Like this man. The response of the man who was delivered is the third response. And really, this is where I wanted to preach the whole sermon from, Pastor. Because up until this point, you've been thinking, wow, that's a demon-possessed guy. Never had that experience. Never been demon-possessed. Can't identify with him. He's in a bad state. He really needs the Lord. He's, a, he's an addict. He's enslaved. 
But notice the response of the man who was delivered. Do you see in verse 35? Look at his location. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. That is an incredible place to be at the feet of Jesus. Notice his condition. There's two changes to his condition. There's an external change. He's clothed in verse 27, whereas previously he was unclothed. And and notice the internal change. He's clothed and in his right mind. Notice his petition in verse 38. He begged that he might be with Jesus. Don't you see the contrast between the beginning of this episode? What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? In other words, we don't want anything to do with you. Then he gets delivered. He gets saved by Christ. And now he's saying, please don't leave me. Can I go and be with you all the time? What an amazing change. Those of you who are yet outside Christ, I remember Sandro, who's now planting a church on the island of Madeira, when he would come to the church and he'd hear us preaching, he'd say to us, man, those sermons were so boring, so boring, boring, boring. I couldn't wait for them to get over. He had to come because he was dating a woman in our church against our council. But she said, if you want to go out with me, you have to come to church. We don't believe in that kind of missionary dating. Don't do that. It's unwise. But he did it. And then the Lord saved Sandro. And you know what? All of, all of a sudden, those boring sermons began to be, he couldn't get enough of God's word. He was hungering and thirsting and yearning to meet with God, the living God, through his word. And that's what happened to him. The change between the beginning and the end. Do you see the contrast between this man who's saved and the unregenerate city people? He wants to be with Jesus. They don't want anything to do with Jesus because they're not yet delivered. And notice his declaration in verse 39. I wish we had time to develop this, but I don't. This is where I hope to expand this at, a, at another preaching of this message. But in verse 39, Jesus says, no. He, he, he tells the man uh, in, in verse uh, 39, return. Jesus sent him away at the end of verse 38 saying, return to your home. Where is his home? In the city. Remember? It's in the city. Return to your home and declare, listen, how much God, God has done for you. And do you see what the text says? Look at what it says. And he went away, the demoniac, or the former demoniac, the delivered man, proclaiming, that's the word preaching, throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus said, go tell him how much God has done for you. And he went away telling everybody how much Jesus had done for him. You see it? Yeah, some of you are nodding your head. You get it. Jesus is God. Uh, What was the question that the disciples were asking just before this whole episode? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? You see, the winds and the waves know who Jesus is. The the demons know who Jesus is. He is God, very God. And this delivered man knows who Jesus is. That he is is God, very God. And and believer, the, the, the Scripture makes it clear that without the saving grace and mercy of God, 
all of us are bound in sin, bound in chains and gloomy darkness and powerless to deliver ourselves. We should not think ourselves better than this delivered man, though we may have never been possessed by demons. Oh, no, no, no. There's a lot more, uh, there, there are greater similarities between this man and, and ourselves in our fallen state than we'd like to uh, uh, acknowledge, isn't there? Well, think about it. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, before salvation, we're all enslaved. Was this man enslaved? He was enslaved. We're all enslaved, according to Romans 6. Before salvation, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.26, that all were held captive by Satan to do his will. That sounds like this guy. But that's a description of a broader group of people, us who have been saved. We were once held captive by Satan to do his will. Colossians 1.13 Uh, Paul says, before Jesus delivered us, all are held within the domain of darkness before salvation came to us. All are Satan's offspring and children of the devil. Genesis 3.15, Satan's seed and offspring. Jesus said in John 8.44, you are of your father, the devil. And Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, you once were darkness. That, That was your description and my description. But now... You're children of the light. Believer, before any of us were saved, we're not so unlike this man in the text. So how ought this text to affect you, my dear brother and sister? I I contend in advance to you that it ought to lead us like this man. We ought to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. I mean, the authorial intent of this passage is to know who Jesus is. So that Theophilus will be certain about who he is. We know who he is. But if that were all of the Holy Spirit's goal, that could end right after verse 37. Do you see what it says in verse 37? He could have just cut it off right there. Verse 37. For they were seized with fear, so he got into the boat and returned. Can you imagine if we didn't have verse 38 and 39? But the Holy Spirit extends that. He's already been proven to be God, the Son of God. He's going to give one other account with Jesus telling him to tell all that God has done. And he he says all that Jesus has done. But I think he also does something else. He's already accomplished his goal of identifying Jesus as God. I think he's giving us some sort of insight of what ought to happen in the lives of those who have been delivered by Jesus. And first of all, in verse 35, we ought to be sitting at the feet of Jesus. This ought to be your regular posture. It's the place of learning. It's a place of love. It's the place of worship. It's the place where true disciples are found throughout the gospel narratives. Your life ought to demonstrate radical changes in two primary areas of your life. Notice internal change, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Anyone who's in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And there's a massive external change. By the way, legalistic churches focus on the outside. Biblical churches focus on the inside with an outside uh, result. God is after your heart. He's after the inner man. And that's what happens here. He gets delivered internally and the outside changes. And you need to have radical changes in your life if you're a true believer. And, And finally... Your deliverance ought to result in you exalting the Lord Jesus. This delivered man, like this delivered man, you have not been left behind. 
I know we, we have, there's a book and maybe a movie called Left Behind. But you've not been left behind. You ever wonder why Jesus didn't just take you to heaven after he saved you? No. Jesus says to his disciples, as, as the Father has sent me, even so send I you. You're not left behind. You're sent like this man. You're sent like this man by the Lord Jesus to tell others all that he has done for you. That's what it means to make disciples. That's the starting point. Oh, I don't know how to share the gospel, Pastor. I don't know. I'm not a missionary. I've not been trained in seminary. Well, take a look at this guy. You know, he's been living among the tombs for a while. He hadn't been home for a long time. But Jesus delivered him, and he didn't need a class in evangelism. He just followed the simple instructions. This is all that God has done for me. That, that word there, all that he has done, speaks about the details of what, how Christ has changed his life. That's what it means. If you've truly been forgiven for your sin and God has given you the grace to repent and confess Him as Lord and Savior, then all you need to do is go tell mom and dad, brother and sister, your family first, please, like He does, all that God has done for you. Our, our brother Paul Anthes, who went to be with the Lord suddenly up in Placerville, I think of him when I think of Wesley's Words in 1749 when he, penned, when he penned these words, happy if with my latest breath, I might but gasp his name. Preach him to all and cry in death. Behold, behold the Lamb. God saved you and sent you. Jesus saved you and sent you so that you might glorify him. You've been delivered so that you would glorify Him by telling others about Christ. The townspeople, we, we conclude here, the townspeople, the people of the city, they beg Jesus to depart. And you know, sadly, He does. But not without sending them one delivered person. Father, we thank you that you saved this man through the power of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you that you continue to seek and out and save the lost. Thank you, Lord, for those that you sent with the gospel to us so that we might hear, believe, and obey. We might be saved ourselves and by your amazing grace and spend the rest of our lives telling other people all that you have done for us. And really, Lord, as, as the lens of Scripture seems to close and fade to black on the pages of Scripture, the picture we have is this man going into the, into the horizon telling others about what you've done for him. And Lord, let that, be, let that be our narrative. Let that be our encouragement. Lord, let tonight be a night of encouraging those who are sharing the gospel readily and repeatedly. 
that their labors are not in vain in the Lord. And Lord, I pray that tonight for those who perhaps have grown too comfortable, that tonight might be a gentle and gracious prodding, poking from heaven to say that the time is not done yet. There's still time to change. There's still time to make you known among the nations. Thank you, Lord, for this church that loves Christ and loves the gospel, that loves missions. Lord, would you strengthen them and encourage them and help them with this word. In Jesus' name, amen.